Hi, everyone, and welcome to Storytelling Animals. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and my guest today is Georgetown philosophy professor Olufemi Otaiwo, author of the new book, Reconsidering Reparations. So in the first part of this book, Taiwo makes the case that when we think about reparations for slavery and colonialism, we have to realize that we still live in the world that these institutions created. That everything from which families still reap the benefits of the jobs and housing opportunities provided their great-grandparents, to which communities bear the brunt of toxic pollution, to which countries are home to the most prestigious universities, is all linked to ongoing systems of white supremacy and exploitation, and these systems did not simply disappear when slavery was abolished. Reparations, then, for Taiwo, does not only mean looking backward, but looking forward, a world-making project of building new political, economic, and cultural systems of justice and solidarity the world over to replace the ones we've inherited and that continue to create harm. In the second part of the book, he makes the point that any constructive, future-oriented project, like the one he proposes for reparations, absolutely must keep climate change at its heart. It makes no sense to talk about building a better world without taking into account the ways in which that world will be dramatically changed over the decades and centuries to come by changing temperatures. Our conversation largely follows the two-part structure of the book. We start with what makes Taiwo's view of reparations distinct, move on to why we can't talk about reparations without climate justice, and finish by discussing how thinking like an ancestor to future generations can help strengthen our resolve in the face of daunting tasks. It's an extremely insightful book that changed how I think about these issues, and I hope this interview makes you think as well. Hi, I'm here with Olufemi Otaiwo, uh, the author of Reconsidering Reparations. I'm uh, really excited to have you on the show. Hey, happy to be here. Um, Good. So, yeah, let's go ahead and get started. Um, The book talks about both, or talks about reparations uh, and within the framework of climate change. Uh, First, let's kind of spell out your argument for reparations before we get um, too far into climate. So people often associate reparations, in particular in the United States, with um, reparations to Black Americans for slavery. But there are other claims people make. Uh, ta Coates made his famous case in The Atlantic based more on recent injustice in housing policy um, than there are indigenous Americans who have a case based on colonization and, of course, a strong argument for reparations uh, between countries from, from colonizer to formerly colonized countries. Um, your, your book takes an interesting approach to sorting between all these. Um, so when you say reparations, reparations for what? So I'm talking about reparations for transatlantic slavery and colonialism. And that's a really broad way of thinking about reparations. Um, and it's a broad way of thinking about what I think is maybe more to the point as far as I'm concerned, the creation of the planet-sized political and economic order that we have now. Uh, we have a world system we have a global political system we didn't always have a global political system that was the result of a particular era of imperial conquest and racial apartheid and that's the thing that i'm thinking about as far as reparations so it includes a lot of these um, other struggles they're talking about aspects of that political system but it goes beyond them as well Mm-hmm. And I think one of the things that I found compelling was thinking of sort of the core wrongs that are being addressed as both the events themselves of transatlantic slavery and colonialism um, and the atrocities involved, as well as the social structures that came out of them and that we still live with today. Um, yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, th- I think that... Um... One of the benefits of the particular perspective on reparations that I take in the book, which I call the constructive view, but which has been around for decades and decades, um, one of the benefits of that way of thinking about reparations is that it lets you say in a compelling way, I think, 
why it's both the events and the social structure that we should be thinking about. If you think of reparations instead as an apology, perhaps, or as, you know, restitution on the model of, you know, fixing something that's broken or restoring some past level of wealth or welfare, you know, it doesn't lend itself quite as well to thinking about the structural results of past oppression in the same way that this more structural view does. Mm -hmm. So this also lends kind of a, a helpful perspective on the question of not just what, what reparations is for, but who owes reparations. Um, so can you talk about uh, the distinction you make between responsibility and liability for past, um, past and present harms? One of the things that I really grappled with in writing the book and in teaching reparations, which I've done for a number of years, uh, teaching the philosophy of reparations, is trying to map these moral concepts that we have and that we rightly view as important, like responsibility, onto these massive political systems that we're trying to describe and trying to contend with in fighting for reparations and fighting for racial justice. We're talking about centuries of political decisions, institutions, empires, countries that have come in and out of existence across many, many generations, many, many lifetimes of people. And at the end of the day, one of the things that is most core to how I think about reparations is that the idea of moral obligation, at least as we recognize it from our kind of interpersonal interactions, just isn't built for politics on this scale, either scale of time or, or space, planetary level politics. Um, I just don't think there's a useful analog of the idea of guilt or responsibility in the way that you know, I might be responsible to make it up to my friend if I don't live up to a promise I made to them, right? It's, it's just a different mm -hmm. sort of thing than the kind of moral accounting that we need to do in the case of the construction of what I call in the book global racial empire or just the system of racial capitalism that we live in now on a planetary scale. And so instead, as I talk about in the early parts of the book, I think it's better rather than thinking of our planetary system as something that really exists for the benefit of um, the racially advantaged or those who are advantaged by class or wealth or even formal political power. Um, we should just think of it as a distribution system, right? It's a production system and a distribution system. Social advantages and the bases for social advantages get produced and then they get moved across the world and they end up in different places. They end up in the hands of different people. Um, wealth accumulates in one part of the world. Um, pollution and poverty accumulates in other parts of the world and in other populations. And the, there's a historical explanation for which people in which places get the good parts of planetary economic systems or planetary political systems. Um, but we're not really in the space of responsibility. It's better to say um what some legal scholars would um characterize as liability right just some people are on the hook for paying for things and there's there's notion in legal scholarship of strict liability which is when you just have to pay there's not necessarily a legal finding that you did anything wrong or that you were responsible for what happened but you're on the hook for paying and that's a 
version of thinking about responsibility that I think matches how the world works, at least as I think of the world, a bit more closely and a bit more realistically. Mm -hmm. So in, in this case, who, what institutions or individuals or, or nations are, have liability? So a variety of all of the above, but the shortest answer is the, the people and institutions and places who accumulate the most social advantages have to kick in the most for creating a new world, are the most liable for the cost of creating a new just world. So that means the countries at the top of the geopolitical order, the richest countries in the world, countries like the United States, um, the members of the European Union, um, those are the countries that have to pay the most as far as countries go for making a new just world. Um, the racially advantaged populations within and across countries. Um, so those people who, you know, I mean, we're talking about white people, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the people who will be receiving will be you know, working class black and indigenous people um, within and across countries, um, or who will be receiving the most, I should say, not the only people who will be um, receiving. I, I would just add um, corporations as well, right? right? So especially polluting corporations, um, um, banks that are integral to the world order, asset managers, the people who have accumulated the most capital also should have to kick in the most for creating the new world. Right. And I think when you're talking about social advantages and when you're talking about what is going to be paid or distributed, um, it's important to say that we're not just talking about money, even though we are talking about money, but not just money. Not just talking about money, both in terms of what needs to be kicked in um, or what the kind of introductory actions we need to take are. And we're also not talking just about money when we're thinking about what outcomes we're looking for, right? So I think, you know, it's important to stress Money is a durable and um, very convertible form of social resources. If you have money and you need some other thing, you know, chances are you'll find a way to convert money into that other thing, whether it's insurance, whether it's physical items, so on and so forth, right? There's a, there's a good reason that reparations campaigns have focused on money and we should continue to do that, right? So the reparations calls, they're talking about transferring um, cash to households unconditionally, for example, of um, African-Americans descended from those enslaved in the US. Um, you know, unconditional cash transfers are a great idea. Um, whether they come in the form of bonds, as uh, Sandy Darity and Kristen Mullen have talked about, or um, some other scheme, or a universal basic income that has an additional amount for those descended from um, American slavery. These are great ideas. These should be at the very top of the list of the things that we do. But, you know, if the kind of politics that we saw in the wake of Hurricane Katrina are any indication, there are some other things that we also might want to do, right? Even if you have money and you buy a house and that house ends up underwater, you know, presumably that's not quite the change to the world that we wanted, right? There's uh -huh. little left to be desired, right? Uh -huh. um, so we should be talking about not just giving out dollars differently, but we should be talking about giving out you know, disaster insurance differently. We should talk about building different kinds of structures, whether it's just structures for housing to have housing justice for um, marginalized people, um, whether we're taking energy out of the control of shareholders and putting it into the direct hands of marginalized people who would otherwise be 
neglected and ignored when not extorted by energy companies. It's giving people reliable, safe, clean water. And these two are part of the world building that we should be trying to do. And they're not simply matters of dollars and cents. They're matters of how the political wor world is arranged, who gets to make decisions, and who has self-determination, which is something that was a clear value in earlier political eras, but that hasn't quite been at the same level of prominence in today's political discourse. Right. So would it be fair to say that um, kind of traditionally common uh, approaches to reparations include, so you list harm repair, which would be uh, more focused on responding to a, a specific atrocity or instance of exploitation um, to, to sort of fix what went wrong there. Um, relationship repair could be sort of rebuilding a, a more just relationship between, you know, historical oppressor and oppressed group. Um, and then yours, though, is, is you call it the constructive approach, which doesn't, it's not incompatible with repairing harms and repairing relationships. In fact, it involves both of those things. But instead of sort of looking at those more isolated instances, it looks at the system we've inherited and says, this, this system is what we need reparations for, and thus we need a brand new, we need to create a new system. Does that... Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Okay. So the harm repair view, you know, gets something important right, right, which is that one of the things that's gone wrong because of this history is that real people right now are worse off than they should be because of this history and the kind of accumulated imprint of this history. And we just need to make their lives better, right? Um, wealth is clearly a durable way of doing that. Um, and so a lot of the people who make harm repair arguments are the people that advocate for checks or bonds programs or um, investment in communities and community centers. Um, but tangible, concrete differences in the lives of the people who are receiving reparations. And the relationship repair folks notice that, well, there's a reason why resources don't flow that way in the first place. And one of the reasons why is because there's still, you know, there's still racism, there's still patterns of well-earned distrust between people who have been oppressed generationally and the institutions that have oppressed them. And so part of the work that we need to do is to address those kind of relational dynamics, right? We need to give people real reasons to believe in their neighbors and or the political institutions that are around them. Um, maybe even repair people's relationships with themselves because um, oppression spreads psychological harm as well. And all these things, all, all of those points are just correct, as far as I can tell. Mm -hmm. um, but they are all looking within the system and finding problems within the system and trying to fix those problems within the system as it works. But none of them, I think, quite go as far as to view the system itself as a target of intervention, right? Or, as, mm -hmm. or changing the system itself as part of the point of what reparations should do. And I think it should be, right? I, I think for the very same kind of reasoning that motivated relationship repair folks, right? It's no accident that these relationships are bad. Just as it's no accident that some people have less wealth, more poverty, more pollution um, in their lives than other people. Um, it's no accident that the systems that decide who's rich and who's poor operate in the way that they do. And 
if we just change today who has what amount of dollars without changing those broader long-term distribu distributive dynamics, um, I think we will be missing a lot of important opportunities if we want to make historically decisive changes to whether or not our society is just. Mm -hmm. So now that we've uh, sort of grounded the constructive view of reparations, let's sort of move into what does all this have to do with climate change? How did you become interested in connecting this to climate justice? I originally wasn't. I didn't work in climate politics at all. Um, you know, I was, you know, vaguely following it, you know, to more or less the same extent that anybody who consumes a lot of news media was vaguely following it, you know, years ago. Um, but it's actually trying to go without it that convinced me of the central importance of climate politics to all the other things I was already concerned about. Mm. So, you know, my background, you, before I was studying philosophy, I was studying social science. And so I had that kind of, you know, wonky set of thoughts about political philosophy. You know, what's a good um, economic policy should, from a pan-Africanist perspective, should there be a, continental free trade zone, um, you know, what are good public health policies, you know, how much investment should go to this kind of education, just these really, you know, bread and butter kind of um, important, but also not particularly exciting policy sorts of questions. Okay. And when I first started working on reparations, those were the questions that I thought were central to um, racial justice and justice more generally. But as I tried to work through any of the scenarios I was thinking about on a longer time scale than a few years, then I started running up against practical questions that I just couldn't answer without thinking about climate politics. How are any of these things going to work in a climate that's two, three, or four degrees Celsius hotter decades from now, right? Are we, are, where is the Sahel, right? What's the sea level? And what kinds of trade and what kinds of disasters are, are likely to interfere with any of the plans for anything that we're trying to come up with? And that's the connection between reparations and climate crisis. It's not that there isn't a deep historical and conceptual connection between racial injustice and climate crisis. There is. Um, but the actual reason for thinking about climate crisis, I think, is much more simple and direct, which is, you know, if you want to do a constructive project, if you want to accomplish something that's forward looking, you need to take into account the practical obstacles of doing something durable in the future. Right? If you have a harm repair or relationship repair view of reparations, and it's just a kind of, you know, moral principle you're trying to live up to, you don't necessarily have to think centrally about the practical consequences of, um, or the practical conditions for this or that reparations plan. But if the whole point of reparations is to accomplish a certain kind of thing in the future, to achieve a certain kind of practical result, then I think necessarily that perspective forces you to contend with, well, what are the things in the world? What are the trends in the world? What are the forces in the world that would come between you and that outcome? And on any sensible um, look forward, into global politics or even local politics in many a place, I think, climate politics will stare directly at you in the face when you try to tell the story of how any of the plans that you have are going to take root and maintain themselves. Mm -hmm. So you could make an argument that a lot of our climate and ecological 
issues right now are are rooted in the same global system that um, is responsible for so much other injustice um, in colonial extraction of resources and industrializ industrialization of of some societies at the expense of others, um, but kind of more more fundamentally, it just doesn't make sense to look into the future or plan anything for the future without accounting for the impacts. Yes, exactly. So I think there are many in, in the climate movement or, or on the left who would say, yes, we need to respond to, to climate change. Um, yes, we should, you know, prioritize the well-being of, um, you know, the global South that was, is less responsible for the crisis while also bearing the worst of its impacts. Um, similarly, you know, domestically, uh, communities that often are, are less responsible for emissions are those that are hit the hardest. This is sort of, I think some would say, comes straightforwardly from kind of a universalist moral perspective, either that, you know, whoever is most responsible should pay for it or just trying to help whoever is, is most in need. Um, why is it helpful to, to bring reparations into this? So I think it's helpful um, for a number of reasons. Um, one, I just think as a practical matter, um, parts of the world, um, especially the particular parts of the world that have been ascendant um, in recent global history just are concerned with their kind of moral reputation, right? And that doesn't mean that they at all act consistently with it, right? But it does exert some pressure on how it is that they act. And it does seem compelling to people that, um, failures of certain kinds in the area of climate politics would present kind of distinct sorts of moral injustices. And so just adding another kind, you know, seems like it's the kind of thing that is not nothing. Uh, mm -hmm. It is certainly not in and of itself going to change climate politics, but neither is it relevant. Um, but I think framing climate justice under the heading of reparations um, makes a couple other worthwhile kinds of differences. One of the others is that I think it's very clarifying about the kinds of differences that we need to make. So people who have the more sort of technocratic view of climate crisis um, and climate justice in particular are often in favor of things that redistribute resources. So these are people who are, would broadly agree with you if you said that rich countries should chip in more for loss and damage, for example. Um, or even for climate adaptation or mitigation or any of the other myriad categories of climate policy. Um, but I think fewer of these people would tell you why the basic decision-making apparatuses should be different in the first place. Fewer of these people would tell you why IMF voting procedures, for example, um, don't give sufficient power to the global majority. Fewer of these people would call for unilateral, unconditional transfers, as opposed to um, transfers that go by way of loans and create debts and have lots of forms of technocratic surveillance, et cetera, et cetera. Um, what I'm getting at here is that for the people who view um, climate vulnerability and the unfairness of climate vulnerability just as a kind of, you know, unfairness around whose fault things are, don't really see 
any connection between the distribution of climate impacts and climate vulnerability and the distribution of political power and the bases for self-determination in the world order. Okay. And I think those are aspects of global politics that climate reparations can help put on front street by telling the history of how actually unequal power relationships led to the crisis and the material inequality that is the basis of lots of climate vulnerability in the first place. And so if we're not addressing that history, we're likely not addressing the power inequalities that are going to lead to tomorrow's inequities. Mm -hmm. So I'm glad you brought up um, the need for self-determination because the, the problems we're talking about, both the um, global racial order of brought about by colonialism and transatlantic slave trade, um, and also climate change itself, and also, um, you know, so many others are are very, very global, um, but some of, at least some of the solutions or ways forward that you offer are, can be rooted locally. Um, so how, how does that work? That's a great question. Um, and in a way, it's the kind of question that ultimately only movements can answer. Mm -hmm. You know, um, the, the ultimate, the ultimate get out of explanation free card from dialectical <laughs> materialism. <laughs> um, but, but, but what I will say, um, and what I think we can say from this side of history, um, is, you know, something of a guess, right? Um, mm -hmm. A guess about how bottom-up climate politics might work. So broadly speaking, I think it's clear on a planetary scale that the markets are not the solution, but the problem, right? And mm -hmm. it is the ongoing encroachment and corresponding erosion of state capacity and organized popular capacity that has been wrought as neoliberalism has ravaged everything that explains why we can't get anywhere in climate politics and also explains the vast accelerating upward redistribution of wealth and control over resources in our society. Um, the forces of capital and their political handmaidens control how energy and who has access to it, how critical resources like water are managed. And I think far and away conclusion, there's no solution to the climate crisis with those things in place. Um, but neither, as I think you're rightly pointing out, is it obvious that if you just give, you know, a few city councils some solar panels that you're going to get big global change. So the guess that I'm making, um, and the guess that I suppose I'm inviting other people to make, is that power over these critical aspects of social decision-making how does energy get produced and who gets it? Um, how is water managed? Who decides whether it's clean or not? You know, who's accountable in the event that it isn't? Um, these kinds of key questions, um, control over actual parts of the social system, are individual bits of territory in the broader fight for social control over our lives and the global fight for self-determination in much the same way that um, a fight over whether this shop floor is unionized or that shop floor is unionized is a fight over the control of the social control of the terms of working conditions in a society mm -hmm. or i should say in our global society right mm -hmm. it's not so much that 
you know, once this Starbucks is unionized, then the revolution will immediately follow. Right. If it's, only. You know, it's, it's more that, you know, we actually see, as a matter of social scientific fact, there are demonstrable results to union density, right? Because mm -hmm. at a broader kind of more ecological level of analysis, what union density is an expression of is the relative balance of power between capital and labor. And these fights for energy democracy, for con community control over land and housing and water, I believe are fights of the same kind. You know, if we just take that energy and apply it to a holistic analysis of social power, um, we get a union density kind of analysis of what it's going to take to dislodge authoritarian control of capital over all of the aspects of survival on this planet. And that includes working conditions, but it includes how resources are managed, so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I, I like that analogy between um, self-determination of, of land and water and energy and, and uh, more control of the workplace. Um, I, I share the guess you've made over, over local local struggles being really important in this global fight, um, and I, I believe it's true. And it's also a guess that sometimes keeps me up thinking, "Oh gosh, what if it's wrong?" Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if everybody's trying to make those decisions based on these hyper local calculations, right? Like, how do we feel about putting solar panels over here based on you know? our deeply contextual rich history with this land um is that the right kind of perspective is that a perspective that could possibly jive with you know having to get this thing done on a planetary level and you know again i think we're somewhat in the realm of guesswork um but i think a lot of these you know a lot of these questions are not so much questions about whether our full categories of climate actions like carbon offsets are possible or compatible with global temperature targets like 1.5 or 2 degrees Celsius, whatever. You know, it, it, these high level questions aren't the rights, aren't the scale that matches the kind the kind of problem that we're seeing in these cases. I think more often it's a question about, well, how exactly is this solar farm, you know, talked about and developed in a community? Mm -hmm. How, you know, what is the benefit sharing arrangement between, you know, whoever it is that's putting up the solar farm, especially if it's, you know, a private entity um and the people who live around it so on and so forth and i think once we stop letting the market and shareholders and profit seekers um dictate the initial terms of the design of these projects i think what we're going to find is that there are a lot of these kind of tensions are a lot more resolvable than they seem on the surface um, they just aren't resolvable if you're letting shareholder value decide what kinds of community designs are available. And so that's the other, you know, more, um, more architectural reason why energy democracy is a thing that needs to happen, right? Because I, I strongly suspect slash guess slash hope slash believe that if you actually let people um if you if you let people design kinds of energy systems that respect what's important to them locally but also participate in a global project of decarbonizing our um energy system and repairing historical damage of slavery and colonialism I think a lot of people will elect to do so, right? A lot of people mm -hmm. will find a version of doing something in their community that contributes to that and that contributes to their own community's well-being. I think people are creative. They'll look for ways to do it. 
and they'll find those ways. I have no confidence whatsoever that executives and shareholders will do that. So just a couple of last questions. Um, in the, you know, you, you are arguing for a new global political, economic, cultural system based on non-domination. And it, you know, part of me reading that is like, all right, let's go. I'm, I'm so ready. And part of me is, that sounds like a lot. Um, and how do you, well, I think you introduce uh, the ancestor perspective to sort of help, help navigate this tension. Um, can you tell us more about that? Yeah. Um, maybe I'll say one thing leading up to that, which is mm -hmm. just that the conversation we just had about, you know, local energy democracy, community level democratic control over contributions to global project, to the global project of rebuilding the world. I think that's what it looks like, mm. right? I, I, I don't have the picture of the world where, you know, we just build the party and then we, you know, have the glorious siege of this or that town and then we install the party and then question mark question mark solution right? <laughs> like that's that's uh, not my view you know it's it's going to look like a lot of seemingly disconnected struggles that link up with each other all along their progression and that continue to link up with each other as more and more struggles win and develop a stronger network. And so, you know, every divestment campaign that, you know, pulls money out of fossil fuels and prisons and polices and pol polices and uh, police departments uh -huh. um, and puts that money in pro-social, low-carbon things, in the care economy, in communities, checks to Black and Indigenous peoples. Every struggle of that kind that wins is a step towards um, this huge grand picture that I'm talking about with the globally changed economy. As a reminder, that's how this version of the world was built as, you know, as unjust and disgusting as our world system is, you know, it, it wasn't a bunch of people sitting in the Vatican saying the whole world is ours now. Of course, they did say that, but the actual, <laughs> but, but the actual process of making that happen went conquest by conquest colony by colony, uh -huh. bit of territory by bit of territory. And that is actually how planet-sized social systems change. And so right. even though I'm setting this huge horizon, you know, I'm not trying to s describe some unattainable political project that we can't do any version of. I'm right. trying to say, you know, there are concrete things that we can do now and none of them get us to the whole thing but each of them move us in that direction mm -hmm. and so the ancestor perspective is something i talk about in the final chapter of the book that is trying to get us to kind of spiritually psychologically however you want to think about it but reconcile ourselves with the kind of world historical struggle that's in front of us because I think a lot of people, I think the appeal of that earlier, you know, view of revolution, that more romantic view of political struggle that, you know, I kind of made fun of just now, uh -huh. you know, the appeal of that is like, you get to, the, you get to see and feel the change in your lifetime, you know, in front of you as you storm the Bastille, right? You're like, we are taking this now and we get to see the fruits of our labor and reap the fruits of our labor, you know, and not just do that ourselves as individuals, but on a time scale 
that we understand, right? I can see the Bastille and I can see, you know, the new Republic that we create. Um, I can, I can see the clash on the street and I can see the thing that results from all those things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not at all in principle opposed to that. You know, if we can get it done that quickly, let's go. Right. <laughs> right. But that's not the only kind of victory worth striving for. And, you know, here I'm taking my cues from, you know, the very long history of the black radical tradition. Most of the generations of which did not see anything like that. Right. Right. You know, by the time, by the time the Haitian revolution happened, there had been centuries of domination of African people trafficked across the Atlantic Ocean in European colonies. It's lifetimes upon lifetimes of, you know, rising and resting people who did not themselves as individuals see either the beginning or the end of the particular system of injustice they were struggling against. But they kept making it possible, they kept carrying on the traditions, the intellectual and spiritual, religious and moral traditions that eventually in the late 18th century were taken up by people who burned the plantations down and who built something else after. And if that's the kind of success that's available to us, that's good enough, I think. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, that's a kind of value, that's a scale of value that actually most people, culturally speaking, respond to. You know, I tell this weird story about soy sauce and how um <laughs> how a guy you know not just any guy you know this is as sympathetic as i ever get to capitalists but like you know a guy who owns a soy sauce business um is able to make soy sauce the old way because one day his grandfather and his grandfather's neighbor decided to plant a bunch of trees trees that grow for decades you know knowing that those are the kinds of trees that are necessary to make soy sauce, not knowing whether, you know, they were going to have grandkids or what those grandkids would be like or what the world confronting them would be like, but trusting that, you know, those grandkids might be comrades in an intergenerational struggle and knowing that what practical conditions those descendants faced was dependent on what decisions they made that day. And that kind of culture, building things for the generation after you and the generation after that and the generation after that, that is something that a lot of cultures, you know, a lot of people have a tradition of doing, whether or not that tradition has been maintained until now. And if you don't have one, Good news, you can start one, mm-hmm. right? But that is that is important. That is something worth valuing. That is a kind of value we can respond to, and we should. Yeah, I think that's a a good place to to wrap up. Um, I have one short last question, which is just sort of what. For listeners of the podcast or, or readers of the book who are compelled by the, the vision of reparations laid out, compelled by the vision of world making and climate justice, um, what what parting words or other thoughts do you have as they move forward in the world? I guess all I would have to say in the way of parting words is just, you know, to point out something about what I just said, 
which is that, you know, if you were standing in Haiti, in the colony of Saint-Domingue, as the French Empire called it, in the 1770s or the 1760s, if you were standing in Brazil in the 1810s or in South Carolina in the 1830s, you know, you wouldn't have any reason to believe just on the basis of what evidence was available to you that you were experiencing the final days, the final years on a world historical perspective, um, the final era of these vast systems of injustice. Uh, but if you were standing in any of those places, that's exactly what you were experiencing. Mm -hmm. And things seem bleak in 2022 because they are bleak, you know, like shit's fucked up. <laughs> but history is long and it's weird. It winds in ways that we can't predict and that we certainly can't control. And that means things can get very bad, but it also means that things can get very good. And I think if you're the kind of person who's fighting for them to get very good, a thing you have to reconcile with, and a thing that I think you necessarily have to overcome to do this work is a kind of tyranny of the present. That the only thing worth thinking about or striving for or working towards is the thing that seems like it could happen tomorrow. I don't know that the global order of justice and reparations and the destruction of anti-black racism and white supremacy and settler colonialism, I don't know that that can happen tomorrow. Mm -hmm. But I know it's worth thinking about. I know it's worth working towards. And the fact that maybe it can't happen tomorrow doesn't have the final say on whether or not it is. Right. We do. And so let's say something worth saying. All right. Thank you so much. I think the book is Reconsidering Reparations. It says a lot that's worth saying. Um, and there will be a, a link to purchase in the description. Um, Olufemi Otaiwo, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks a lot for having me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, please either send it to a friend or even share it on social media. We're a relatively new podcast, so any help getting the word out uh, is greatly appreciated. These first couple episodes have been um, kind of philosophy-heavy works of nonfiction. I hope you've been enjoying that. I certainly have. Uh, coming up, we also have a couple novels, so hope you'll enjoy that as well. <laughs>